straight here. We are this spring looking at um, the book of James, um, the epistle of James in the New Testament, I'm trying to study closely together God's word. Um, and as we get started this morning, let me, let me open us with prayer. Let me pray for us. Um, Father, we thank you this morning for your faithfulness to us, for your kindness um, in Jesus Christ. Um, Father, uh, I pray that you would um, be with us now as we uh, spend some time studying your word together. We ask that you would um, bless us with your presence, Father, and by your spirit you'd be with us, that you'd make even um, the words that we study this morning um, to be life for us. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so we, as I said, we are studying the book of James um, this uh, spring, um, looking together at that epistle. Um, we've made it up through, um, last week we made it up through um, verse 18 or so. And so just before we jump into, we're going to look today at 19 to 27, before we do that, um, just a little bit in way of reminder, let's talk a little bit about the context of the book of James. What, do, what have we talked about in terms of James's context and audience and likely author, author that kind of thing? I'm going to give me some, some review here. Yeah, three potential authors, right? James, son of Alphaeus, one of the apostles. Uh, James, son of Zebedee, one, also one of the apostles, brother of John. And then James, and the brother of Jesus, and is also a potential um, author for this epistle. What about, what about context in terms of the time at which the letter might have been written? And what was happening in the lives of those to whom it was written? Yeah, right. So James identifies his audience, he says, to the 12 tribes and the dispersion. And we talked about how that word is used in the book of Acts to refer to those Christians who were dispersed or scattered from Jerusalem in the persecution that arose um, after the stoning of Stephen. And how this letter is likely written as kind of a circular letter, um, not to one particular group of those people, but um, probably to um, a number of them, um, a number of those communities that were then, as those Christians went out into the Mediterranean world and established Christian communities, um, that this letter was then written as sort of a follow-up, a pastoral follow-up um, to encourage them even as they went and established new lives um, away from their homes, away from their jobs, away from their communities um, because of the persecution that they were experiencing. And that persecution likely um, continued um, in the places where they went as well. So James is a letter that is written um, to, um, um, the, can we turn me down just a bit, guys? I don't think I need to be up that loud. Um, James is written as a letter to um, Christians who are experiencing suffering, Christians who are needing to persevere, um, Christians who are experiencing um, challenges in their daily lives. And James is responding to that um, with this letter. Um, some of the th emphases that James has, of course, are things like um, steadfastness. We really, just to review, we, in, that, in that first three or verses two through four, um, we, we really read um, the, a summary of James's uh, overall message. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
Um, James says, count it all joy when you experience trials. And here he echoes the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus says um, uh, to, to rejoice when others revile you and persecute you and treat you poorly on my account, rejoice for you know that your reward is great in heaven. Uh, James, in a similar way, says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. And then he says, because you know the testing of your faith, as your faith is tested and tried, it produces steadfastness, and steadfastness over time will produce a maturity, um, that you will be made mature. And that, that goal of maturity um, is the person of the Lord Jesus. And this is the goal of the Christian life. And this is the goal of holiness and sanctification. And uh, it is accomplished um, through um, the work of the Spirit as we endure trials, as we endure difficulty. And we learn to be steadfast and to persevere in the midst of those things. Um, James goes on to talk about wisdom, the need for wisdom. There's this idea of uh, double-mindedness. Don't be a double-minded man. That's a really important theme all throughout James, that we need to be single-minded in our pursuit of holiness or our desire to be like Jesus and to not waver in that. Um, and then he makes promises. He talks about um, this, this beatitude that's given in verse 12. Blessed is the man, right? and that sounds like another part of the Sermon on the Mount, right? the beatitudes, uh, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Uh, James is, in effect, creating a new uh, beatitude for the Christian believers to whom he writes. Blessed is the man who, writes, who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And, of course, who is the blessed man who remained steadfast under trial and was given the crown of life? Who is that man? It's Jesus, right? Jesus is, this is true, of course, for the Beatitudes that Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount himself. Um, he is the one who is uh, meek um, and inherits the earth. He is the peacemaker who is called the Son of God. Um, all those Beatitudes apply first to Jesus himself and then to his followers. And the same is true here, um, that, that James, um, when James says, Blessed is a man who remains steadfast under trial, he's, of course, referring to first and foremost, to the person of the Lord Jesus. And he is again pointing his readers to imitate him. And then we looked several weeks ago at how James then, you know, first it may be appear he does this sort of segue or, or shifts the topic and begins to talk about God's nature and God's character and how God doesn't tempt anyone. Um, let no one say if he's being tempted that he's being tempted by God because um, actually we're tempted ourselves and we're lured and drawn away by our own desires. Um, you know, God doesn't tempt you. Your own uh, heart, your own fallenness, your own sinfulness is what brings temptation. And this becomes important because, of course, if a person is in the midst of suffering and difficulty and trial, one of the things they do quickly is to wonder about the character of God. What is God actually like? Does he really love me? Is he really good? Is he really faithful? And what James is saying here when he says, um, every good and gift, perfect gift from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow um, due to change, that, that God doesn't change. Yes, our present circumstances shift and change. Um, um, that is this life in this world. Um, and also, but the character of God is the same. He's always good. He's always faithful. Um, he's always with us. And he's always working those things in our lives, inviting us to steadfastness, inviting us to obedience and faith so that we uh, walk in the way of Jesus, right? Um, Jesus did not first um, go to glory, but first suffered pain uh, by suffering the cross, and we walk in his path, right? We follow the path that Jesus set for us.
And then in verse 18, he makes this really wonderful promise of his own will, of God's own will. He brought us forth by the word of truth. That word there is either the person of Christ or the scripture or both probably, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. We're a, a first fruits of the harvest to come. That's what James says to his writers, that, that you are the first generation of followers of Jesus and there's a great harvest to come. So hang in there, be steadfast. Be patient and wait. Any questions about any of that before we jump into new stuff this morning, starting in verse 19? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Yes, well, I mean, a couple of things I would say in response to that. One is, part of what James is doing is inviting us to believe that, that sanctification and holiness and maturity is something that is actually a part of the life of a Christian, um, that we are actually being transformed, that, that steadfastness is having its full effect, that we are being made perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so we can have confidence that the Spirit is at work in our lives and He's shaping our desires. And yes, sometimes we may ask um, for things that are not according to the will of God or not good for us, but we can trust our Father to handle that, you know, to, to, um, uh, to, to filter out those things and to only give us the things that are good for us. And again, remember as we've looked at you know, Romans 8 and Women's Bible Study, what, what God work, promises to work for good in our lives is to be conformed to the image of Jesus, right? It's not just some sort of like, um, God, you know, says all things work together for good. That's what Paul says. But then he defines that good as being conformed to the image of Christ. You know, God working all things for good doesn't mean, oh, my life is going to be wonderful and I'm going to have, you know, stacks and stacks of cash and, you know, whatever it is. Uh, good, properly defined, that God works in our lives, all things for, is to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And so I think we can trust that that is a process that's, at hap that's happening. Um, even Romans 8 again talks also about how the Spirit intercedes for us when we don't know what to pray or how to pray. The Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And I think that's, that's a, there's a dependence and sometimes in our lives we get in places like that where we don't exactly know even what to pray for. And we, it's a great time to pray the Psalms. It's a great time to uh, even pray silently sometimes, maybe, you know, like to trust that the Spirit knows, the Spirit knows what we need, and we can trust Him to intercede for us, um, even along, along with the person of Christ. Yeah, that's a good question, though. But certainly, certainly we're being set forth, the, we're being set free, I think, to pray and to ask for wisdom, to ask for these things that, that God promises for us, for maturity itself. All right, let's, let's jump into some new stuff here. I want to, sh I think, and I want to continue to, Really important to read James as a as a whole argument, a book, an argument that builds upon itself. It's going somewhere. I'm going to try to do that this morning as we continue uh, with the next section here. So verses 19 to 21, James says this. Uh, remember, he has just said of the, of his own will, of the Father's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. He's just made that statement. And then he segues and says this, Know this, my beloved brothers. 
Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Let's think about that for a moment, that little section there. First question, why might James's readers be tempted to anger in their lives? Yeah, you're experiencing injustice, right? You're experiencing uh, persecution for nothing other than trusting in Jesus, and you know that he is actually the Messiah of Israel. Um, and, and, uh, and so these people are unjustly persecuting you. Um, you've been forced to leave your homes um, and your possessions, and probably some of you have been thrown into prison in your community and are being threatened with death even. Um, and so it's understandable that you might be angry in that situation, right? You might want to raise your fist and, and, uh, and, and do something about it. Um, and so in that context, James says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I want to focus for a moment especially on that for the, in verse 20. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Um, another way of thinking about that phrase, the righteousness of God, this is not so much the righteousness that is given to us through the work of Jesus that's imputed to us, um, this is talking about God's righteousness in terms of God's justice, right? Um, God's, uh, the, the justice of God, um, the righteousness that God requires, we might say, um, right? God is, um, desires righteousness um, in the world and justice and things to be according to his law. And so what James is saying here basically is, for the anger of man does not produce the justice of God. What is that? Let's unpack that a little bit. What is, how does that what does that mean? Yeah. We're usually angry because we're put out about us. And I think it's interesting when we think about anger, even think about anger in your own life, usually it's because something is not the way it should be, Right? You know, you're angry because, you know, your kids aren't listening. And kids should listen to their parents, right? I mean, it says so in the Bible a lot, right? Uh, you're angry because you don't feel like your spouse is loving you appropriately. And obviously your spouse is supposed to love you appropriately. That's in the Bible. You're angry because someone, you know, is, is doing an unjust thing, you know, on the highway. They're breaking some kind of law and there's no policeman there to, you know, take care of it. So you're angry about it. Uh, you want justice, Right? You want justice, and so you get angry. And what, what is James saying here? He's saying that, okay, maybe your anger is rooted in this desire for, for things to be right. Um, now, as you point out, Alexis, we're not always actually great evaluators of that. <laughs> we potentially may be a little biased right, about, about right and wrong uh, when we're angry um, and maybe are, are blinded even to our own participation in, in whatever sin we're upset about. But I think what he's saying here is that, that the anger that you have is not going to produce the thing that you think you want, right? 
The way to get justice, the way to, for, for things to be made right is not going to be accomplished through your wrath, through your effort, through your you know, manipulation of that event, through your, your emotional outbursts. So basically what he's saying. Yeah, Todd and then Matt, both that hands up. Sure. We're justified in that. Yeah. Yeah, Todd, as Todd mentioned, the anger of God, I mean, sorry, the justice of God is often achieved through his wrath, through his anger, his judgment, right? When he visits judgment on societies or even on human men in particular, um, certainly there's an aspect of God's wrath um, in that. And so, yeah, we want to, and I think that's part of what James is saying here. When you are angry in this way, uh, you are trying to play God. You're trying to be God. You're trying to affect the righteousness that God requires through your own effort, um, but it's not going to work. That's kind of what I was, my question was around is just this idea of righteous anger. Mm-hmm. Whenever you are angry because you do something that, like, I've got you. <laughs> I know that you're wrong. Right. And if that's a biblical concept at all, in the sense of like righteous anger, or if it's just, I mean, from our perspective, which is right. Yeah, that's great. So Matt's asking about, if you didn't hear, um, what, is it, what is righteous anger? Is there a category for, for actual righteous anger? And that's the phrase that we use sometimes, right? Yeah, humans can have, Jesus was righteously angry in what event? The turning of the tables, right? That's the sort of paradigmatic example. Um, did you have something to say about that? or? Is, is there a category of righteous anger? Let me, let me, I'll take questions so I can try to answer this. So, so what I would say is, I think, as you think about that paradigmatic example of Jesus' anger, um, what is he angry about? Um, I think, if you read that story in context, one of the things that he's angry about is that um, in the court of the Gentiles, uh, where a Gentile God-fearer who was not circumcised but trusted in Yahweh, there was a place in the temple courts for him. Um, he could come, he couldn't go all the way in, he couldn't you know, do all the sacrifices, that kind of thing, but he could come into the court of the Gentiles and pray. Um, and what had happened over time is that the court of the Gentiles had been taken over um, by this, this market, essentially, uh, for Jews coming from wherever they came from to, to pay the temple tax and to, and to buy sacrificial animals so that you, know, you didn't have to trail your goat along with you for you know, 100 miles from wherever you're coming. You'd get to the temple courts and you could buy your goat to offer for a sacrifice. But all of this was taking place in the court of the Gentiles. So I think one of the reasons Jesus is angry in that passage is that he, um, he's angry that, that Gentiles, who are God-fearers, are not being treated in the way that God's law requires. Um, that they're being systemically excluded and pushed out and marginalized. So there, there is, so I think there is a category for righteous anger um, where we're protecting someone who's innocent or someone who's being victimized. Um, 
I do think that we still have to do, even if we're angry in that way, we have to still realize that the anger that we have, even if it is justified, is still not going to produce the righteousness and justice of God, right? We're not going to be able to right every wrong. We're not going to be able to make everything, do you know what I mean? Like, there are things that will be outside of our grasp, and we... Yeah, because so, my judgment on him is not going to be God's judgment. Right. right? I mean, so that I the Lord, you know, as, as Paul says in Romans 12, you know, don't take vengeance yourselves because vengeance belongs to the Lord. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Um, and I think, I think that, so yeah, so I think to answer your question, certainly there's a category, obviously much of our anger is not quote-unquote righteous, right? Much of our anger is because we're defending ourselves and we think that we're completely innocent and usually we're not completely innocent. Um, uh, but it, it, it is, yeah, there, there's a category for a, for a father or a parent or, you know, um, someone, especially if someone under your authority is being victimized or is being, and that's, that's why Jesus was angry, I think. One of the reasons he was angry in the temple was because um, these, these, you know, brothers, you know, people who loved God were being excluded from being able to worship God. And he, that, that deeply angered him. Which actually, it's interesting, that's a similar thing that's happening in chapter 2 of James. You know, James is saying, you're excluding the poor man for the rich man. Don't do that. And he, he's kind of upset about that. So there's a difference between justified anger and righteous anger? Um, no, I'm not trying to make that distinction so much. I think I'm saying there is, there is a category of anger that, is, that it has righteous motivation, I guess I would say. But even anger with righteous and pure motivation um, is still ultimately impotent to affect the righteousness that God requires, the justice of God. Does that make sense? So even when we're righteously angry at the realize that we, even my motives are pure, I'm still not going to be able to like achieve justice through my frustration or my, you know, my words, my actions. Ultimately, that's something I have to entrust to God. Um, and again, just thinking about the story of Jesus, you know, the story of the crucifixion. You know, Jesus obviously was suffered unjustly, not only in that he was innocent of all sin, um, but that he was particularly innocent of the charges that he experienced, right? Um, that were leveled against him of blasphemy, of, you know, of, of insurrection, of stirring up the people, all these things. They were false charges. And what did Jesus say in response to those charges? Nothing, basically. Right? Um, and I think there's a model. Of course, there's a model. We know there's a model because First Peter 2 says, remember how Jesus suffered when you suffer unjustly. Remember what Christ did. He did not open his mouth to defend himself. Um, but he, he went and, and, you know, Peter's not saying there that we're imitating Jesus and sort of, you know, we're, we're going to be redemptive in our deaths or our suffering in the same way Jesus was. He's saying Jesus gave you a pattern for how to respond when injustice is being done against you. Now, don't mishear me, I'm not, there is time, you know, if you're being abused at home, if you're, you know, in a you know, domestic abuse, violence, you should speak up. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying we have to, when we think about suffering, uh, we have to think about the model that Jesus gives us, and, and he gives us a very particular model. Okay, so let me continue here. Um, so, anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. And I think that filthiness and wickedness is not just, you know, like sordid activities that we might be involved in, but particularly worldly ways of living, worldly ways of manipulating power, 
um, worldly ways of trying to affect um, the justice of God, and receive with meekness the implanted word. Receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. I think that's a really fascinating statement here. Um, and I think this is part of why James says, let every person be quick to hear. Um, you have to be quick to hear, receive with meekness the implanted word. This is actually how the justice of God will be achieved. It's not through human anger. It's through meek reception of the word, the implanted word, that over time will bear fruit in the world and bring about through the work of the Spirit um, and under the reign of Christ, the justice that God requires, the justice that he wants. That this, this, this path may seem like the slow one, you know, there may, you may, you're going to be tempted all the time to take shortcuts to God's righteousness, to God's justice in the world, but James is saying this is how it's actually going to work. And of course, if you think about even the story of the early church, this is what happened, right? Um, over time, as Christians were persecuted and put to death and suffered in various ways, first under the Jewish um, uh, leadership, you know, basically for 30 to 70 AD, and then um, increasingly under the Roman Empire after that for several hundred years. What happened? Just slowly as Christians, you know, there wasn't some kind of armed Zionist Christian movement to take down the Roman Empire to have a coup or, you mean, just people just suffered and trusted and received with meekness the implanted word and loved their neighbors and picked up babies off of trash heaps and, you know, just followed Jesus. And then over time, 200 years later, what happened in the Roman Empire? It converted. Right? They all became Christians, right? Constantine becomes a Christian, and it, you know, eventually it falls um, later. But yeah, at first there's this there's this conversion that happens, and and I'm not saying that was you know the perfection of the church or anything, but it was certainly an improvement um, from previous iterations of the Roman Empire. Um, and but the way that it's important, I'm just pointing out the way that that took place was just through faithful, patient Christian witness following Jesus not through some kind of like, you know, manipulating power play and whatever. Um, it was the work of the Spirit ultimately. Um, and so that, that's the model that's given for us. Receive with meekness, and of course the, that word meekness points back to the Sermon on the Mount again. There are so many connections between the book of James and the Sermon on the Mount. Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Jesus says, the meek shall inherit the earth, right? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Which is a really interesting promise when you think about it. Right? The meek are like the last people you think would inherit the earth. Because they're not like out there, you know, defending their ground. They're meek. You know, they're trusting God to do that. Uh, but the promise is that the meek will inherit the earth. Um, and I think that's a, that's a really important promise for us. All right, any questions about that before we jump into this next section here? Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's agricultural. You know, the word is a seed. Um, uh, and that idea of harvest um, is a big one in James. Um, later in chapter 5, he's going to say, uh, be patient, brothers. Um, the farmer, you know, alludes to a farmer. He says, you know, a farmer has to plant the seed and then wait over time, and eventually the harvest comes. Um, and so I think, and I think that's a really, obviously, Jesus uses agricultural metaphors. We've talked about that. Um, and that, that idea of, of harvest I mean, it connects also, of course, to 
verse 18, that we should be a first fruits, that's harvest language of his creatures. That, I mean, what, and what's the, what's the hard thing about waiting for a seed? You can't see it, right? You put it in the ground and you water it and it has sunshine. If you've done this with your kids, you know. It's like, oh, what's going on? You know, like, what's happening here? And, and then finally, the, there's a sprout and then, over, you know, you see the harvest. Um, and I think that's what James is talking about here, that, that there, may be, there may not be visible, tangible evidence that this is working sometimes when you receive the implanted word. Uh, but be patient and wait uh, for the harvest to come. Yeah, Eric. Yes. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, Jesus, multiple times, not only in that parable, but many times in his teaching, uses the image of a seed. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, right? We looked at this actually in Mark, was it chapter 4, how the kingdom of God is like a farmer who plants a seed and then falls asleep and doesn't know what's happening, and then he wakes up, and then there's this huge tree. You know, that's what the kingdom of God is like. Um, which is a really, and I think that's the kind of thing that James is talking about here. Um, it, it, it happens without people realizing what's happening, basically. And, and it speaks to also the perseverance issue because we've been brought forth by the word, which yep. is the initial part of what the word's work is in our lives, bringing us to birth. But then there's that continual attendance to receiving the word. Right, which not, is. Not just And that statement, which is able to save your souls, that, that is speaking to perseverance, right? This, it's not, you know, um, we believe that, that as we persevere, right, perseverance is a necessary condition of our salvation. It's not optional. They're not, you know, people who trust in Jesus and don't persevere who will be saved in the last day. Um, that's not a category that exists. Um, so perseverance is necessary. Of course, it's not up to us, it's the power of the Spirit working in us um, and the promises of Jesus and our union with Him that enable us to persevere. But He's saying, You receive with meekness the implanted word, and as you persevere, your souls will be saved, right? In the last day, you'll be saved. All right, let's, let's continue to look here, 22 to 25. James says then, But be doers of the word and not hearers only. I'm going to just point out that word. That's the, um, what, third time in about four verses where that the word has been used, right? Verse 18, the word of truth. Verse 21, the implanted word. And now he says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. And this is important because in verse 18, he said, be quick to hear, right? He was emphasizing the hearing aspect. And now he's saying, but don't only be hearers of the, uh, the word of truth, of the implanted word, but be doers of it as well. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. What jumps out at you here? What's interesting about this little section? What's the metaphor that James uses here? If you are someone who 
only hears the word and doesn't do it, what are you like? Yeah, like you wake up in the morning, you look yourself in the mirror, and then you forget what you look like, who you are. Um, and, and this is speaking, remember chapter one, already he's talked about don't be double-minded, right? Uh, when you ask for wisdom, you have to be single-minded. Don't be like a double-minded man tossed and, and turned by the waves, you know, by the wind. And that's the same thing here. This is a double-minded man. A man who gets up in the morning, looks at his face in the mirror, and forgets what he's like is a double-minded man, right? He's not acting in a way um, that's consistent um, with, with the word. Um, so don't be double-minded is a, is a fair summary of this, these three verses here. Um, he's going back to that ne ne the necessity of single-mindedness. Uh, I think verse 22 also is interesting. It tells us what it means to receive the word. We might say... What does it mean to receive with meekness the implanted word? Doers of it, right? That's what it means to receive with meekness. And that's what meekness is, right? Meekness is submissiveness, obedient. It's not just being quiet or something, right? It's about arranging yourself under uh, something, under the rule of God, right? Uh, trusting in his, his authority, his power, um, his goodness, and that's what James is saying here, that if you're a, a doer of the word, um, then what you're doing is you're receiving it with meekness. Um, you're receiving it with submission. You're saying, God says for me to do this, and so I'm going to obey. Um, even if I can't see the visible fruit of my, of my obedience, even if it seems like maybe it's wasted, um, I'm going to be obedient to God. And that's what it means to receive the word with meekness, to be a doer and not a hearer only. Have a hand up, someone, Jeremy? Yeah, um, and like even like the question of like what the word is, it, it, uh, he's talking about how the word is what creates this like this faith that bears fruit, and it's the thing that saves. But it's also it's also like the thing that um, it's also the thing that shows people themselves. It also has an aspect of like the law, the law of liberty, but I'm saying a certain kind of law as well. And these are like Jewish. Believers, and I think that they would probably have seen this as like this Old Testament and like the, the verses that speak about about Jesus. And you can imagine that probably a lot of like the like the preaching that went on was talking about that Old Testament. Well, of course, I mean the, they're basically they're likely maybe there's a gospel that's been written. Maybe the Gospel of Matthew exists at this point, um, but it's likely for these Christians that most of the scripture they have is right. the Old Testament. And so, and so the same, right? So the same word, the same scripture that saves them is the same one that, that shows them you know, what they look like. It, it has the, the law that, that they can mm -hmm. learn about themselves. And so it, it's, it's like, it's not even like this one little, just like a word, it's like only the, the gospel or something like that. Sure. No, yeah, it's the entire scriptures. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So here's something interesting. I think this, this is a powerful metaphor for the self-deception of sin, right? This is what, uh, when you are not a doer of the word, but a hearer only, when your life has become entrapped by sin and, and enslaved by some kind of sin, some kind of habitual sin in particular, you're blind, right? You don't know what you look like. You don't know, you're, you don't know which way is up. This, this is the pernicious danger, actually, of sin and of not being a doer of the word. I'm on a pastor's internet group, and one of the guys um, in a different state was writing about a pastoral situation this week. He said, I'm going to meet a guy who is um, in adultery, and he needs to be confronted, and he's convinced that he's fine. And I'm going with another elder, and and we're going to go and try to rebuke him and, you know, hold him to account. 
And he said they met with a guy, and the guy was basically like, well, I don't think what I'm doing is adultery. Maybe you think that, but I don't think that. We both need to think about it and pray about it. And he said, the guy said, you know, the woman and I, we're just friends, you know, and, and we're just friends who we spend time together, we hold hands, and occasionally we kiss. And it's not adultery, it's just friendship. And just, I mean, I'm sure, like, if you hear that, right, like, like that's not friendship <laughs> between men and women, right? Uh, whatever, I mean, there is a category of good, holy godly friendship between a man and a woman that are not married to each other, that's fine. But obviously it doesn't include holding hands and occasionally kissing, right? Like, that's not friendship. That's something else. Um, that is adultery. But this guy, you know, in his, in his sin was convinced, like, we're just friends. What's the big deal? You know, this is, this is, not, this is not adultery. Um, but I think, and I think any of us who are not presently trapped in that sin will be able to be like, well, duh, right? Like, that's not... That's not hard to see. But, you know, and this is pastoral. When you deal with someone who's trapped in a sin, it, it, appears, it appears to them that they're not trapped, which is the, this is the pernicious danger of being a hearer of the word only and not a doer, um, not a doer who acts, but a hearer only, um, uh, that we can become like people who look in a mirror and forget what we're like, who can lack even the kind of self-awareness or self-knowledge um, to understand when our sin exists. Um, and this is why, as Jeremy points out, we need to look into something else. We need to look into the perfect law. 25 continues that mirror, that, that, that mirror image, right? That mirror metaphor. Um, instead of looking in a mirror and forgetting what we look like, we need to look into the perfect law. The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, which certainly is a reference there to the Old Testament, to the Torah, um, to the teachings of Jesus as well um, that have been added to that law. He is the one who will persevere, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, and he will be blessed in his doing. Uh, again, that blessing language that again connected the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, that this is, this is why we, one of the reasons we need the, lo- the law of God, is so that we can understand rightly our sin and understand rightly the places where we're deceiving ourselves. Because, I mean, believe me, everyone in this room is self-deceived in some way. You know? Like, we all are. Let's just be honest about that. We all have practices and things in our lives um, that, that we sort of pat ourselves on the back for, or we just say, yeah, it's not that big of a deal. Um, like, we're all, I mean, there's a spectrum here, right? There's, there's some forms of self-deception that are really dangerous and, you know, really deep. But all of us um, are all, we're all self-deceived in some way. Um, and what we need to break free from that, um, even more mundane forms of self-deception than adultery or whatever, is the law of God. We need to come back to it again and again and, and evaluate ourselves based on what God says um, instead of you know, our own standards for righteousness, um, which are much more flexible, shall we say, right? much more contextual um, based on circumstances. Um, Continuing on with this, so James, so James is talking there about what it means to receive with meekness the implanted word. It means to be a doer of the word, not the hearer only, to continue to gaze into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and to allow that to define us and tell us who we are, to follow it so that we will be blessed in our doing. Um, again, that's another beatitude, that's another promise. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who do the law, um, who follow the, the, who do the word, are not hearers only. Um, there's a blessing inherent and promise there. 
Uh, James then goes on to say, and he begins to now even define even further, what does it mean to do the word? What does it mean to do this, to look into the law, the perfect law of liberty, and to persevere? Um, this is all connected, right? To be, what does it mean to be a doer who acts? Okay, he's going to tell us here in the remainder of chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he is religious, so you look in the mirror and you see a really religious person, and doesn't bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Um, this idea of speech ethics is something James is going to come back to again and again throughout his epistle. Um, and and it's, it, it is connected to the teaching of Jesus, right? Because Jesus says, out of the outflow of, overflow of what does the mouth speak? The heart, right? That, that you want to know what a person's heart is like, listen to their words, right? Spend a day listening to their words. Out of the outflow of the heart, overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so James is going to again and again to say, this is, this is um, what it, you, you can't, you can't profess faith in Christ and curse your brother, right? You can't bless God and curse those made in God's image. Um, you have to bridle your tongue. Your tongue actually reveals your heart. And this is one of the ways in which we really are called um, to be doers of the word and not hearers only, is through our tongues. And he's going to talk in chapter 3 about the difficulty of that, right? That it's almost impossible to do. Uh, but it's something that as Christians, uh, we are called to do and to grow in and to be like Jesus in. Um, Jesus, whose, whose mouth um, did not control his heart, um, but his, his heart actually um, uh, dictated the words that he spoke. Um, and then he goes on to define what it means to be a doer of the word only. It's not just about, um, it's not just about uh, speech ethics. It's not just only about bridling your tongue. But it's also religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Why is James saying that these Christians to whom he writes are going to need to visit orphans and widows? Why are there orphans and widows in their community? They're being persecuted, right? right? There, are, there are husbands who have been imprisoned or killed. Um, there are fathers and mothers um, who have been imprisoned or killed. And there are orphans and there are widows. And James is saying what it means to be a doer of the word someone who acts in this way in obedience, is to go and to be with them, is to go and to care for them, to go and to, to bring them into your family, whatever that looks like, right? Uh, maybe that's not a literal them moving in, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a moving toward, right? It's a, uh, it's a care uh, for orphans and widows. And I think this is it's interesting that, and of course James says this because in the Old Testament, who is constantly identified as the one who cares for the orphan and the widow? In the Psalms, right? God. God cares for the orphan. The Lord cares for the orphan and the widow. He protects them. He watches out for them. This promise is reiterated again and again in the Old Testament. So it gets back to this idea that, that holiness, um, maturity, is actually taking on the character of God. It's not just some kind of abstract moral category. It's actually being like God. Uh, be holy as I am holy. Um, that's what the, you know, Jesus says that God says about himself. Um, and of course, he does say that in his law. Um, that to be holy is to take on the attributes and the characteristics of God himself. Um, this is what we're designed for, this is what we're made for. And one of these things is to show compassion and mercy to orphans and widows. And I would encourage us not to overly spiritualize this text. What James is talking about here is visiting orphans and widows. Like, literally, visiting 
orphans and widows, like actually getting in your car and going to their home and sitting with them or their hospital bed or whatever it is and visiting them, right? Like, don't, don't overly spiritualize this and make it into something that's just like, well, it's really about, you know, having concern for widows and orphans. Well, no, yeah, sure, I guess. But don't be a hearer of the word only and not a doer, right? Don't actually not get in your car and go visit them and tell yourself that you have concern. Right? I mean, that's what he's addressing in, in James 2, right? right? You, know, you know, a faith without works is like a man who says, oh, you're, you're, you're cold and you're hungry and, and you're in trouble. Well, I hope that works out for you. You know, I, I, I'm concerned about that. You know, good luck. I mean, you don't do anything, right? That's, don't do that with this. And so it, I would just say, I think, I think this is a great way to, to measure the spiritual maturity of any church, any Christian community, is how well orphans and widows are cared for. That's what Jesus says, or James says. Jesus says it through James. So James says is one of the marks of true religion, true piety that God is pleased with. You know, it's not building massive Christian complex churches and amazing TV ministries. It's visiting orphans and widows in their distress. Um, so I would just commend that to you and think about it. We obviously have orphans and widows in our church. If you don't know who they are, I'd be happy to talk to you about them. And They're, they're wonderful. They're such a blessing to our church. Um, I think especially with the widows in our church who are, who are um, advanced in age but are wonderful models of faith in Jesus Christ and obedience to him. And they need our care. And so do the orphans. You know, we have children in our church who are growing up without a father or a mother because of certain circumstances, and they need care. And they need um, us to come alongside them and love and, and care for them. So this is, this is true religion, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. All right, any final comments or questions before we close? One, we'll take one from James, and we'll close. Yeah. Um, and not just anger toward those who are unjustly um, yeah. persecuting the church yeah. from outside. Yeah, often you're angry at your neighbor, right? Not so much the guy across the world, but yeah. Yeah, but James seems to focus on later. Yeah. All right, let's stand and pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for your promises, the way that you care for us, Lord. Um, we ask that you would... Um, use even the word that you've given us through the Apostle James um, today um, to, to dwell with us, that by your spirit we would be those who not only hear it, but do it, um, who listen and obey, who receive with meekness the implanted word um, in that way. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. <laughs>